The third variant of the kit measures albumin, creatinine and what's called the albumin to creatinine ratio. And this is a really important test that everybody with hypertension and everybody with diabetes should be doing every year. It's an indication if you have an abnormal result that your kidney is beginning to degrade. So it's one of the first markers for understanding and identifying chronic kidney disease. So it's nationally, internationally best practice that everyone should have the test done once a year. But certainly, globally, actually, you find uh, a lot of people with diabetes and hypertension who haven't done their test, again, because it's that same aggravation of having to get a pot and go to the lab and take time out and get the test taken. And actually, again, we're enabling people to do that at home. Welcome to MedSider Radio, where you can learn from proven medtech and healthcare thought leaders through uncut and unedited interviews. Now, here's your host, Scott Nelson. On today's program, we've got Catherine Ward, Chief Commercial Officer and Managing Director for Healthy.io. She's worked in healthcare for 26 years, uh, 15 in the UK National Health Service, and 11 years with United Health Group, where she was the Chief Executive of United Health UK and Chief Growth Officer for Optum International. In this interview with Catherine, here are a few of the things we discuss. Why the time has finally come for decentralized remote diagnostic screening, lessons about remote care from the COVID-19 pandemic, Healthy.io's focus on clinical grade population health technology, including regulatory considerations, the reimbursement landscape, and their approach to clinical trials, how technology can work together with and within existing health systems, Catherine's favorite business book, the business leader she most admires, and the advice she'd give to herself five to 10 years ago. There's a lot more we cover in this wide-ranging discussion, but I wanted to call out a few things before we get started. First, if you're new to these MedSider interviews and want to be updated when the next one goes live, head on over to MedSider.com and enter your email address. Rest assured, you won't be spammed. In fact, the only time you'll hear from us is when a new conversation goes live. Again, it's super simple. Just visit MedSider.com, and right there on the homepage, you'll see the opportunity to enter your email address. Second, if you continue to enjoy these interviews, please give us a rating. In your podcast app, just open the Reviews tab and click on the old five stars. Thanks Again, it really helps us out. All righty, without further ado, let's get to the interview. Hey, everyone. Welcome to another episode of MedSider Radio. And on today's program, we have Catherine Ward. Catherine, welcome to the uh, the program. Appreciate you uh, you coming on. Thank you for having me. I'm going to provide a little bit of a bio on yourself, and you can certainly fill in the gaps if I don't get everything correctly. And then we'll talk a, a little bit about maybe some of the, the points we want to touch on as part of this discussion, which I think will be very interesting because we're recording this here in... Um, the tail end of March 2020 in the kind of the, you know, sort of the, the apex or like you know, at least close to it uh, with the coronavirus or the COVID-19 challenges that were that most of us, you know, I imagine that are listening to this conversation are are experiencing. And, and what you're what you're doing with healthy IO, I think, is, is very, uh, very timely. I think it's uh, it should be a fun discussion. But by way of background, um, Catherine, you're the, the chief commercial officer and managing director uh, of the U- UK and Europe for Healthy IO, and we'll certainly get into what what Healthy IO is and and the, and the problems you're you're solving for. But you've got a very, I mean, what appears to be a very impressive background. You know, 26 plus years uh, of healthcare experience, 15 years in the in the UK National Health Service and both provider and payer roles, and 11 years with uh, United Health Group, where you were the um, the chief executive of United Health UK, and then the chief growth officer for Optum International. So that's a, at least a high-level overview. But anything else you you think uh, would be valuable, you know, in terms of your your background, your or your your bio, Catherine, before we get started? No, it's actually now uh, 28 years in healthcare, so it feels like a very long time. And really, three legs of the stool, as you've just described: public sector in the UK, NHS, and then 
large global multinational healthcare company in UHG and then now my move into startups. So I literally went from being employee number 456,006 at Optum to being number 23 at HealthyIO. <laughs> That's great. Such a such a different uh, a different paradigm for sure. But your experience kind of in, in that in that world, I think, is probably paramount for what you're doing at Healthy IO. So, on that note, let's talk a little bit. I, I want to set the stage for people who are listening because we're going to get into um, you know, most of this conversation is going to is going to ra- uh, revolve around you know some of the challenges that you're solving for with with Healthy IO. But if you can help me understand, maybe in a few minutes or less, what's sort of the elevator pitch for Healthy IO, and then. And Catherine, before you answer that, maybe it, I'm not sure if it makes sense to approach this in, in two different ways. One, if I'm a patient and maybe one, if I'm a, a healthcare provider, because you're really, you're solving challenges for both kind of segments, if you will, of the, the healthcare ecosystem. So can you help help us get a better understanding of Healthy IO and the challenges and problems you're trying to solve? Sure. So Healthy IO is the first company in the world to get a CE accreditation, uh, which is the UK equivalent of an FDA approval, uh, and now FDA approval for using the smartphone camera as a clinical grade diagnostic device. We're founded about five to six years ago now by Yonatan Adiri, who was the chief technology officer for Shimon Peres when he was president of Israel. So Yonatan was traveling the world with the presidential delegation trying to position Israel at the forefront of genomics, of stem cell research, of all the big ticket items that one day are going to transform healthcare, when he realized that the biggest investment in tech is actually going into the smartphone camera. And that's because of the 8 billion selfies that are uploaded to the cloud every day, mostly my children. And that if you could take that investment into healthcare, you could get the transformation that we're all so eager to see happen, actually happen more quickly. And you'd also get it to happen at low cost to those healthcare systems because the hardware and software is being invested in by the tech companies and the consumers buying the device. So ultimately, it ought to be a good value proposition for particularly government-sponsored healthcare systems like the NHS in the UK. So with that in mind, I created a first product, which was uh, digital urine testing. That was on the basis that it's the second most common diagnostic test done on the planet. There's 200 million done in American outpatient departments across the country every year. There's 42 million done in the UK National Health Service every year. And it's also color-based interaction. So you can actually use the smartphone camera as your device to enable an accurate urine test to be done. So essentially, it's a combination of a kit, which is a pot, a dipstick, the same dipstick that's used currently. We haven't tried to reinvent this. Uh, we're you know, not trying to persuade clinicians to do something different. And a color board, and enabled, that's enabled through an app, which is a chatbot on the patient's phone, where essentially a chatbot talks them through the process of filling the pot, dipping the dipstick, placing on the color board, and scanning with their phone. And that then translates the combination of that color board and dipstick into a clinical grade result, substantially equivalent to the point of care analyzers in the hospital. And that result comes in real time onto the patient's phone, but also into the electronic medical record so the clinician can see it in real time. So that's the kind of first product family. Second product family is then to take that ability to identify change in color in arbitrary light conditions with arbitrary phones into wound care. And we've created two calibrating band-aids or plasters 
sit either side of a leg ulcer or pressure sore and enable an accurate perimeter measurement of the wound, enable a 3D reconstruction of that wound and for tissue type to be identified through colour and a standardised image then to go into the clinical record where often clinicians are using paper tape measures and tracing paper to as their major tools in this field at the moment. So if I take your question from a patient perspective, it enables this enables you to bring your care close to home, particularly the urine testing can be done in the comfort of your own home. You don't have to take a sample to the lab in your handbag. You don't have to use the facilities of the restrooms in the hospital or the clinic, which are not always the nicest, certainly in the UK. And you can undertake that testing in the privacy of your own home, knowing that it's accurate and that your condition can interpret it remotely. And if you are a healthcare provider, that will enable you potentially to avoid unnecessary outpatient footfall. It will enable you to undertake remote monitoring for rural populations. It will enable you to actually reduce the cost of delivering that healthcare in time and potentially also pick up people who've not perhaps done routine screening that involves urine testing so that you can better manage population health. So really a kind of advantages from both the patient and the provider perspective. That's super helpful background. So just at, at, at a high level, if I'm going to summarize this correctly, because I think this, you know, most people are going to understand the implications for the healthcare system. But if I'm a patient, let's start with just the, the urinary testing. Instead of having to go to, to schedule an appointment with a, with a practitioner or to schedule an appointment at a, a diagnostic provider, you know, here in the U.S., you know, the most common are, are places like uh, Quest, Diagnostics, and LabCorp, and those types of companies. Instead of having to go in person, I can do a, a healthy I.O. Um, test at home through kind of a, a similar type of process, except I'm using my own smartphone and basically do all of this virtually in home instead of having, you know, experiencing sort of the inefficiencies of the former scenario of, of what I described and, and setting a, uh, you know, setting a, having to set up an appointment, go to a physical location, wait on the results, et cetera. Does that kind of make sense? Yeah. Am I understanding that yeah. correctly? Yeah. And if you take it, if you take it from the example of, for example, a pregnant woman who pregnant women out there will know you have to do a lot of urine testing during a regular pregnancy. If you have a high-risk pregnancy, so if you have hypertension or gestational diabetes, you can end up having to take a test into the lab three times a week. And that will involve doing a first-of-the-day sample, putting the pot in your handbag, carrying it with you into work, potentially having to take time off work or having someone else look after your kids, taking a bus. You know, there's a whole set of inconvenience related to this, as well as then having to use the facilities potentially in some of these clinics. And all of that goes away because you can basically take the test in the comfort of your own home first thing in the morning. And that result will just be sitting with your clinician when you go to see them later in the day, or they can just call you up to say that there's, that everything's fine or that there's something that they want you to follow up on. It reminds me of kind of almost this move, and we're going to kind of get into this in this topic in, in more detail, but it's almost like the equivalent of talking to someone, you know, 30, 40 years ago that was, uh, that still uses a fax machine or snail mail to communicate. And it's like there's, there's all of this technology that is being either discovered or enabled that allows for so much more efficiency across the board, regardless of the vertical. You know, and obviously we're talking about healthcare, but it's amazing at how slow our systems are at adopting this, <laughs> this type of, uh, of technology, um, considering the kind of the, the major needs. So before we go too much into that topic, and I know we're going to, you know, later on in the conversation, I hope to cover a little bit more about how this, this idea came, came to life and, and sort of the, the regulatory pathways that, that you followed there at Healthy IO and, and trying to navigate some of those complexities. But before we get too far into that conversation, 
in terms of the the urine testing, and I know you, you talked a little bit about the wound healing um, technology that you guys are working on or, or have available, but specific to the urinary test, what sort of diagnostics does that entail? Is it for specific, are you looking at, at urinary testing for a specific condition or is there more that you can theoretically test? Like as an example, if I wanted to use healthy IO for just general wellness, as an example, do you provide those sort of diagnostics or is it, is it specific to certain conditions? So we have three versions of the urine test um, and each of them has a different dipstick. So this is how we it's predicated. One of them has 10 parameters dipstick, which is basically multi-stick, which clinicians will, will be very familiar with, but essentially that measures leukocytes, nitrites, blood, protein, glucose ketones, bilirubin, urobilinogen, uh, specific gravity, and pH. Our main use case that we're um, engaged in with that kit is in maternity, which I was just describing earlier, but we also have use cases in renal and in our primary care relating to that dipstick. We have a second version that is measuring three parameters, leukocyte, nitrite, and blood, which is a subset of the 10. And those are, that kit is specifically around urinary tract infection. And we're very focused on uncomplicated UTI in 16 to 64 year old women, where we're very engaged in retail pharmacy and engaging pharmacists and the pharmacy teams in enabling women to have rapid access to treatment and really helping them to steer away from needing to see the primary care physician and going through the whole process, which certainly in the UK can be quite cumbersome to kind of get their treatment very rapidly. The third variant of the kit measures albumin, creatinine, and what's called the albumin to creatinine ratio. And this is a really important test that everybody with hypertension and everybody with diabetes should be doing every year. It's an indication if you have an abnormal result that your kidney is beginning to degrade. So it's one of the first markers for understanding and identifying chronic kidney disease. So it's nationally, internationally best practice that everyone should have the test done once a year. But certainly globally, actually, you find uh, a lot of people with diabetes and hypertension who haven't done their test, again, because it's that same aggravation of having to get a pot and go to the lab and take time out and get the test taken. And actually, again, we're enabling people to do that at home. So those are the three kind of clinical use kits. Now, in theory, the 10-parameter dipstick does give you a set of indications that you could look at from a wellness perspective. And, you know, there's people who do ketone diets, there's people who would be looking um, more generally to see is there anything going amiss here that I should be keeping an eye on. We have deliberately really steered away from that market. So when we were first set up the company, when the company was first set up, when we first sort of established the mission for how we want to operate, we had the option of the less regulated direct-to-consumer wearable fitness world, which would have been a lot easier in terms of the regulatory pathway. But our mission was really to be embedded into the mainstream health system and actually be part of the clinical outcome that we need to get to from a, you know, as a society that we really want to kind of drive and improve health outcomes. And that actually, we were a better place to do that embedded into the mainstream of healthcare than we were on the fringes of that wearable world. Now, that wellness and direct-to-consumer world is really important and there's a lot of companies and a lot of products that are really developing in that space and I think we'll see over time a change in the paradigm where that becomes much more of a of driving force but there's also huge and important kind of volume of activity that needs to be clinically and medically sound in order to drive the right outcomes and we've really set our stand out to be part of that mainstream healthcare 
environment. So we haven't actually focused on that wellness space at the moment. That's super helpful, and and thanks for kind of touch, touching on that. I, I think it helps set the stage for kind of the next the next sort of you know stage of this uh, or the next kind of part of this conversation, if you will, which is really around the broader need for kind of this this concept of of, of remote screening. And I think it's 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 obviously very pertinent, kind of um, in in light of the current you know COVID nineteen you know pandemic and, and challenges that we're all facing. So. I'd like maybe to to touch on on that and, and get your thoughts on that, especially considering your your experience and kind of the uh, population health and, and and coverage and reimbursement. And then we'll maybe you know segue into kind of the, the early strategies that you followed there at Healthy IO to, to navigate some of the complexities. But let's let's start with kind of the, that broader need. So can you maybe maybe touch on that in light of the the current uh, you know coronavirus related uh, hurdles that we're all experiencing? Yeah, sure. So as you alluded earlier, we're in an interesting position as a company that's been trying in the market for the last three years to be change managing and transforming healthcare systems across the planet in trying to adopt technology and to try and move towards remote monitoring and diagnostics and trying to really encourage clinicians to enable this to happen. And I think anyone who's been on the journey of startup in healthcare and trying to kind of embed technology will bear the scars of how difficult that change management can be and how many stakeholders there are that you have to enable and get on board and how you have a very high bar in healthcare in terms of the research that you have to and the evidence that you have to kind of lay out and then the evidence you have to lay out for a specific pathway in a specific geography with a specific provider before people will trust that you can do things. And I think one of the things that we've seen with the advent of coronavirus and the radical transformation that's had to, had to be kind of undertaken, and I speak with more authority on the UK situation because that's where I am embedded in terms of uh, where I'm living and uh, a lot of where my, my work is focused. And we've seen a radical transformation into almost every outpatient episode now taking place virtually. So suddenly, where previously there was a question mark about, can you safely do this whole outpatient from a remote setting, particularly where we're dealing with renal patients, for example, and there've been concerns, could you, you know, would it be reasonable to do a urine test when that patient clearly will need a blood test too? And suddenly the whole quality anxiety and risk aversion that we've seen just had to dissipate because it's more risky to bring a patient in for a blood test than it is to undertake a, a consultation without a blood test. But actually, if you can have a urine test, at least you've got some parameters and some markers to enable you to understand better how that patient is doing. So although remote, remote blood testing is not yet fully available, for example, for renal patients needing um, blood creatinine and potassium as a, as a marker that might have been a barrier in the past to not doing home urine because we don't have home blood, in fact, now they'll say, actually, I'd rather have the urine test result and the patient safe in their own home and a telephonic consultation than I would bring them in. So we're actually now seeing a lot of the barriers that we previously had coming down for people to actually say, let's just get on with this. And I do hope, let's see, that that will be a lid that's harder to put back on once patients realise that actually it is there are kind of safe ways to manage their care remotely, that they don't have to make that journey into the hospital with their sample every time, that actually there is some um, convenience to them as well as benefits in the short term with the safety aspects. So we've been very focused on our offer in the world of maternity, particularly in helping pregnant women to stay away from clinic we're focused on that UTI pathway I described, urinary tract infection pathway, and enabling women to be remotely testing and receiving antibiotics as appropriate. 
and also the support that we can give for remote outpatients and to enable digital primary care and telemedicine to function more effectively because they are not just having the video or the telephone consult, but they've also got a diagnostic to underpin and, and back them up. And from what I understand about how the US is evolving too, a lot of the previous challenges around licensing on a state basis for telemedicine and some of those barriers that for a long time have been difficult to navigate for some of the kind of more startup enterprises are starting also to dissipate. So it's a very interesting time. Yeah, I mean, I, I completely echo your thoughts on this. And I'm, I'm sure there'll be other silver linings, right, that come out of the, you know, some of these COVID-19 related challenges. But that's certainly one of them is that these, what I would consider, and I'm not sure if you, you want to go there yet, but I, what I consider like unnecessary roadblocks to adopting some of these, um, whether it's technology or just adopting different processes, some of them are just entirely unnecessary, the, the roadblocks I'm referring to. And these current challenges um, have, have really, in kind of one swoop, um, have a lot, a lot of those, a lot of those roadblocks to, to kind of d- diminish. And we experience, you know, just anecdotally, like at, at Juve, we're seeing the same things. I mean, our, our devices are designed for home use, and we are allocating more and more resources towards towards clinical trials. And most of those clinical trials that we're sponsoring are, are virtual in nature. And we use a company. I'm going to give them a shout out, Proofpilot, and a really cool a platform, technology platform that allows us to do this, do these clinical trials virtually. And, you know, we were, I was just having a conversation yesterday with a group around trial design for a potential uh, study that we're going to sponsor. And it involves, probably involves a little bit more of a hybrid approach. And we we're kind of walking through those. And normally, I think without these coronavirus challenges, the normal like predisposition with, to these virtual trials is kind of like, I don't know, seems kind of risky, not the norm, kind of atypical. I'm not sure exactly how we can do this. But now with the, the coronavirus, it's like, you know, people are completely open to listening and doing things in a little bit of a, a different way, a way that, in my opinion, makes more sense and is much more efficient. But yeah, to, to echo your point, I mean, we're seeing, you know, in real life, some of those larger hurdles and barriers kind of being broken down across the board, whether it's in your case, you know, enabling diagnostics virtually, or in our case, you know, um, you know, trying to conduct clinical trials virtually. It's, uh, it's kind of a, a similar vein, if you will. Absolutely. We had a classic example couple of weeks ago where we've been launching a project for maternity in the UK hospital. Although we are CE accredited and our device is, you know, good to go, we've got all the approvals we need, we've got our data protection and all of our equivalent to HIPAA sorted, everything kind of ready to go to be fully commercial. The hospital still insisted on taking a kind of IRB approach and wanting to do an evaluation before they rolled it out more comprehensively and then they needed us to go to ethics approval for the IRB equivalent and we've been in this process for almost nine months I mean literally as long as it takes to grow a baby and they the maternity (laughs) team eventually came back two weeks ago to say all research in this you know across the whole of the UK NHS has been put on hold because all of the research clinicians are now being placed back on the front line to get on with, you know, the important work of caring for people during this crisis. So they were going to have to stop the proposal. But then they said, but can we use the kits next week? Because actually we've realized we really need them in this environment. And we were obviously delighted that the proposal is now moving forward and we're, we've gone live today, actually. But on the other hand, slightly frustrated that for nine months we've been jumping these barriers of um, all the kind of the theory and the licensing and the process of an IRB equivalent to a trial when really none of that was required and it took this crisis to unleash them to actually get into action rapidly 
And we'll still, of course, evaluate how it goes and we'll be able to pull together some great evidence from the back of the project. But really, it was a very nice lesson in how sometimes the crisis should not be wasted. No doubt. No doubt. On on that note, before we kind of get into sort of maybe some of the origins of, of healthy IO and some of the, the challenges that you've been able to kind of navigate through, you know, in the, in the kind of the, the complex healthcare ecosystem, is there anything else that you can speak to, you know, based on your pretty extensive experience with kind of the, the world of healthcare economics and, and population health, why we need to be doing more of this virtually? You know, whether it's diagnostics, whether it's clinical trials, there are certain clinical trials and all can be done virtually, of course. But anything else that you think is worthy on, worth, you know, touching on for those listening that may be still kind of skeptical of some of these newer approaches? Hey there, it's Scott, and thanks for listening in so far. The rest of this conversation is only available via our private podcast for MedSider Premium members. If you're not a premium member yet, you should definitely consider signing up. You'll get full access to the entire library of interviews dating back to 2010. This includes conversations with experts like Renee Ryan, CEO of Cala Health, Nadim Yared, CEO of CVRX, and so many others. As a premium member, you'll get to join live interviews with these incredible medical device and health technology entrepreneurs. In addition, you'll get a copy of every volume of MedSider Mentors at no additional cost. To learn more, head over to MedSiderRadio.com forward slash premium. Again, that's MedSiderRadio.com forward slash premium.